The Urbanist is brought to you in association with the Department of Culture and Tourism, Abu Dhabi. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is a beacon of hope and inspiration. A catalyst to spark growth and collaboration with museums and experiences, where art and science and nature and technology coexist. The belief of Abu Dhabi that culture is the backbone of our society. Stay tuned for a special episode of the show, in which you can hear His Excellency Mohammed Khalifa Al-Mubarak explain exactly why and how Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is the perfect place to collaborate, create, and innovate. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi, proud partner of The Urbanist on Monocle Radio. And welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle 24's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... We began to see links between urban health and housing and access to resources. And this is something that we really take to heart as architects and designers. On the show this week, we seek some new perspectives on urban spaces and find out how to put in the work today in order to secure better cities tomorrow. We unpack the idea of meanwhile use to see how a developing site can serve a purpose throughout its construction process. We also learn about a new organisation in Auckland helping to bring some perspective on New Zealand's so-called super city and plan for its urban future. Plus, how can you attempt to reframe the public perception of a building as controversial as Hitler's place of birth? We're in Austria to find out. That's all coming up over the next 30 minutes on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. From developing cities to megalopolises, empty commercial spaces and construction sites are common features of our urban environment. Taking up space and providing unwanted disruption and noise, these transitional locations are generally of little or no use to city dwellers. So how can we activate these spaces in the meantime to ensure healthier urban areas? Meanwhile use is a concept that encourages the use of spaces between tenants and during construction, and it's an idea that the Building Design Partnership, or BDP, have been looking into closely. BDP produced a study looking at the ways New York could benefit from a bit of meanwhile use as a part of the upcoming Interborough Express project in the city's east. Monocle's David Stevens was joined by BDP's Jesse Clements and Rosalind Sang. Let's hear their conversation. Typically, a meanwhile use is leveraged on a site or in a space while waiting for permanent development of a site or a long-term use of a space. And a good example of this would be the East Croydon Station in southeast London. And here was a good example of how a meanwhile use scheme turned this vacant plot of land into a dynamic and welcoming pop-up food and entertainment venue for a diversity of users. And it was constructed with the use of upcycled shipping containers. So it includes approximately 96 low-cost flexible units that are arranged around a covered courtyard space. This supported social impact within the surrounding community by 
providing opportunity for 330 independent businesses, creation of over 800 jobs, and over 325 million pounds spent on site. So it's an excellent example, actually, of, of a meanwhile use that has turned into a long-term use because of its success and because of the impact that it's created and the value that it's created within the surrounding community. Rosalind, the last two years we've seen a lot of temporary things pop up in our cities because of the pandemic. Do you think there's something about the pandemic that made us discover how to use space in a more temporary way? Coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic, absolutely, we've seen that these pop-ups, we could do it. Temporary places of open space, temporary restaurants, and just different uses that we could do quickly, we proved to ourselves and through city approvals, relaxing perhaps some of the more lengthy processes for approvals, made it happen because we had to make it happen for the health of our communities. And we do see that, especially in New York City, pop-up clinics were created, pop-up restaurants were created, and we really saw everybody in all communities spending more time outdoors. And the other thing we saw, which also informed and inspired us to do our own study in New York, was that there is a direct link between the poorest housing conditions with the least access to resources and the worst health outcomes, such as asthma, diabetes, mental health. And this really was exposed predominantly within communities of color. So we began to see links between urban health and housing and access to resources. And this is something that we really uh, take to heart as architects and designers. And we like to explore how we can solve some of these issues through our lens. And meanwhile, use is one of these uh, ways in which we can do that. You mentioned the BDP's study, Regeneration, that's based in New York. Can you tell us a little bit more about that study and maybe what you are hoping to find? There is so much open source data on the New York City websites having to do with any metric from demographics through to open park space, crime rates. But the first thing we did really was we took a, a good hard look at how urban health is defined. And we reference the World Health Organization's definition in which it really put forth a policy and a statement that if you have a healthy, strong urban environment, you must prioritize health. The two are inextricably linked, the built environment and health. And seeing as most of what we do as architects, designers are in the built environment, we really dove deeper into that. And we identified what we call five urban health pillars. And that has to do with streetscape design, hubs of social interaction, access to healthy food, environmental comfort, and lastly, preventative health care. And then, as I mentioned earlier, we took all of the open source data available from New York City website, and we analyzed each of these five pillars and we mapped it. We created a whole series of maps and we wanted to see where most of the health disparities were exposed. And so the first part was understanding the data. We layered demographics, we layered parks, infrastructure, libraries and culture, food, supermarkets, air quality, and population density, noise pollution, 
health clinics, pharmacies, all of that data we put on different layers. And what we discovered was that there were areas in Brooklyn and particularly East New York, which is where we finally landed for our study, that had the greatest health disparities and impact. And that coupled with the proposed new transit corridor, the Interborough Expressway, we thought was a really good coming together of a proposed transit corridor, which is related to improved or increased development and the neighborhoods that surround it. So that's a roundabout way of saying that's how we first started the exploration and the research project inspired by urban health and equity and then landing on neighborhoods of the greatest need along a transit corridor. Jesse, Rosalind there speaks a lot about urban health, and that's a big part of this study. Do you think the findings in this study actually can be utilised further afield than just New York? And actually, there's lots of things to learn about urban health in cities around the world. Yes, I would agree with that. This project is transferable. Uh, The regeneration study is transferable to all communities across the continent. It's transferable to considerations for how placemakers, owners of property, of those that manage properties, all these different levels of management of a site and development of a site really is an opportunity for all. And lessons learned from this study can be applied to all different communities. We did hone in on East New York because of the future infrastructure that is positioned to be put in place through the Interboro Express to connect Brooklyn's and Queens and all of the communities that are currently somewhat of transit islands, as we learned in our study. So the idea here is very much about how to manage that transition of communities that are undergoing rapid change without impacting or negating the negative impacts on existing communities and how meanwhile use can be a means to understand the needs in the community, address those needs, and those needs can be addressed in the current time. It doesn't need to be a long wait. So it's a way to address those opportunities and create impact now in communities and to work with the communities and the partners and organizations to benefit everybody. And so we really see it as an opportunity to create healthy, urban and inclusive environments. And maybe just finally, Jesse, do you think that meanwhile use is something that has to be led by the city, by city councils, by city halls? And if there's maybe a mayor listening who thinks this could be perfect for our city, what should they be doing? Do they need to engage with developers first? Is it about getting into that planning process? How would a city that hasn't seen so much meanwhile use and is enthusiastic about it get that to come forward? That's a a great question. I think we all have seen that policy, public policy, can drive change. So in that sense, the opportunities that municipalities, that state-driven or provincial government, federal, all of these levels of policy can drive that change. The loosening of restrictions around zoning amendments is another way to entice or provide that opportunity to make some of that happen and and make it more easily happen within the planning processes. So I, I do think that the opportunity is there. We have learned 
that through meanwhile uses, it can create benefit at all different levels of improving community needs and outcomes. So I do think that it can be enhanced through the work of government and allowing that opportunity to happen. On the other side, we do see that the private sector, that the institutional funds also have the opportunity to make this happen. We see that there is proven improvement on outcomes to ESG performance, to bringing community on side with a future development that is a win-win for both public and private sectors. And Jesse, I'm so glad that you mentioned the need and the importance of public policy and also private developers and owners, because what we're seeing here is a rise in public-private partnerships, otherwise known as P3, as essential to creating a successful development project. We've also learned through the process of community engagement, the importance of being deeply rooted in the community and understanding through the process of creating a meanwhile use in understanding the data that's been gathered and then engaging with the community and even spending time living in the community, really getting deep into the way of life in certain communities. And that is really a critical ingredient to the success of meanwhile uses and the impact that they can create in the most positive way within a community. Jesse Clements and Rosalind Sang from the Building Design Partnership there in conversation with Monocle's David Stevens. We head next to New Zealand, the country's largest city, Auckland. Home to around a third of the population of the entire nation, this is the prime location for urban experimentation and innovation. Although it's certainly an earlier stage of its urbanisation journey when compared to London or New York, Auckland still has plenty to teach the rest of the world, as well as plenty of unique challenges too. One organisation attempting to bring the right city shapers together is the Urban Room, and we recently heard from the founder, Ben Van Bruggen, to find out what the organisation is hoping for in regards to the city's urban future. Ben Van Bruggen, Aho. I'm an urbanist and the founder of the Urban Room. I have worked in London and in a lot of cities around the world and found myself in Auckland five years ago to lead a design strategy team for the city in the role as a city design advisor. Auckland, or uh, Tamaki Makero, as it's known in the Tereo Māori, is really a new city in a new country. The city is less than 200 years old, having been founded in 1840 with a, a land gifted by the uh, local iwi Nati Fatua to Governor Hobson in a kind of way of saying from this creek and this hillside to this creek and this hillside will be the founding of the city. So in that way, it's still very new. And I think it's got some of those challenges of newness and some of the growing pains that a small collection of villages that has moved into being a big city now of 1.7 million people has. So the Urban Room really is inspired by New London Architecture. That organisation led by um, Peter Murray has really kind of brought a sense of focus to citywide strategies and, and visions and bringing people together in a collaborative way. When I came to Tamaki Makoto, Auckland in 2017, 
I didn't find anywhere where I could go where I could engage in conversations about the city. There's a lot of very good urbanists and transportation engineers and planners who have arrived here and kind of are trying to bring some of that influence. And so creating the urban room actually gives a space where all of those people can come together, but also citizens, politicians, decision makers, the public and the private sector. And I think it's really needed here because there isn't that sense of maturity around having lots of these different conversations, lots of people working, experimenting and innovating in the built environment space. So to be able to, I suppose, elevate the level of public discourse by being informed by professional debate is really what the Urban Room is trying to do. What we decided to do was to actually just launch a physical pop-up space. And in order to stimulate some of the conversations, we've taken on loan from Auckland Council and their central libraries to physical models of the city. One was made in 1939 as part of a centenary exhibition that was um, held in New Zealand, really to kind of showcase to the world how progressive and um, how, I suppose, how wealthy it was kind of showing off in a way. And then the other one is a different sort of proposition in that it's a physical model that was used as the planning tool for the city centre. So really it was a response to these large motorways that were then built. And it was really how was the council going to respond to it? So the idea about that is these are great conversation starters in the same way that New London Architecture has its wonderful large-scale model of the centre of London and there's similar ones in Paris and Melbourne and Sydney and others. This is our first attempt at trying to put those together and understanding that the city is something that evolves. It sometimes seems that change is slow, but when you look at it in a decade or two decades, actually change can be quite significant. We're building our organisation, both in terms of a governance, but also in terms of things like sounding boards, and we're hosting events. We've got talks around how we might address some of the issues that we've had recently with the flooding and with the cyclone, and then also sort of looking at what lessons we can learn from Europe. So again, it's a place for best practice, it's a place of the, the city know-how really to sort of come together. I think that the growth of Auckland has followed a lot of other cities. So the things that maybe Auckland could teach are things from Auckland's past. Not least of all, in the 1950s, Auckland had one of the most extensive public transit systems based on street running trams anywhere in the world. And most people took most of their trips on that public transport and that kind of grew the wealth of the city. But the deregulation and the introduction of cars and, and uh, the building of quite extensive ring roads and motorway systems really converted it into a car-dominated city really quite quickly. And so in some ways what Auckland might teach others is going backwards. But I also think that perhaps where New Zealand and Tamaki Makoto does provide leadership in this space is how the work of the city. It's the largest Māori city in the world and that has a responsibility but also an identity that goes with it and being able to listen to those voices and then understand how to reflect some of that in the work in a more of a partnership way is something that's, that is demanded by other countries and so I think there's a great opportunity that Auckland has to have that identity one of the um, aspects about the recent COVID response has been that 
New Zealand was well isolated, so it was able to kind of return to business as usual very quickly. And of course, that's its great problem, is that it returned to business as usual very quickly. And so whereas perhaps London, Paris and others have really used the opportunity to accelerate plans, to move to deal with climate change, to move to city centres as being livable places and public realm, New Zealand and Auckland stalled, really. And money was diverted out of these things and into other elements of keeping people employed. And so the level of experimentation and innovation and moving from a temporary to a permanent basis ground to a halt. And so it's only now that some of these things are picking up again. But there's a nervousness, I suppose, tentative about going all the way with things, you know, things like the pedestrianisation of Queen Street. You can read newspaper articles from the mid-60s where the Business Association is complaining that if the streets pedestrianise, their businesses won't have car parking and they'll go out of business. You know, here we are 60 years later and it's exactly the same. It's exactly the same conversations. And so we seem unable to experiment and move forward with it. Queen Street has been partially pedestrianised and seems to be a very successful space now. And we are connecting up more of these public spaces to make more of a network. The City Rail Link is the first underground rail link. And it's often talked about as being this sort of commuter service, but actually it's the real first kind of metro rail service. And it will fundamentally change the relationship with the city centre. And so those are exciting. Auckland really, really had a, an idea and a vision about being the most livable city. And that sort of changed to being a world city kind of view, but it had a vision, but that's now gone. And whether you agreed with those visions or not, it actually aligned private and public investment to work towards something. That's been lost in recent times. So with the development of Maori design and influence, it's more a case of listening and forming those relationships so that you then understand what's the position and how partnership can work together rather than saying, we've done this thing, we'd like to know what you think about it. So the Urban Room, starting afresh, is able to start with that partnership and bring people together in a what-do-you-want kind of way, rather than a this-is-what-we're-doing. The Urban Room is an independent membership organisation founded by Ben Van Bruggen in collaboration with Judy Stout, Pip Cheshire and Jeremy Hansen. And you can find out more at theurbanroom.com. Finally today, we're in Austria, where after years of legal and moral wrangling, the house where Adolf Hitler was born looks set to finally be repurposed. The building in the small town of Braunau, near the German border, will become a police station. Refurbishment work is set to start later this year. Austrian officials have labelled this a neutralisation of the site, but an initiative group of artists and architects says it amounts to a suppression of memory of Austria's Nazi past and has called for a critical re-evaluation of the project. Monocle's Alexei Korolev has more. Um, we've been discussing the official way of dealing with the birth house of Hitler and had the feeling that it lacks the public discourse, so um, we started it. The building in Braunau was always going to be a problem. It didn't help that for decades after the Second World War, Austria denied its complicity in Nazi crimes. But when it finally came clean in the 1990s, the problem, the building, 
was still there. Official Austria had admitted and had, after really a long, long period of denial, said, yes, we are, we are guilty, but there is a step to be taken. Anna Paul is a founding member of Discourse Architektur, a group of Austrian architects that want to see more open discussion about the building. Austria is planning to rebuild or renovate or um, do something with the birthplace of Hitler. And now at this point, the way Austria, the official Austria is acting is they are planning a built denial. The, if you look at all the information and documents regarding the architectural competition and also the very important commission statement which was put in place by um, then Interior Minister Sobotka. If you look through all those documents, it becomes clear that the remembrance should be taken away from this birthplace. Architect Gabu Heindl took part in the competition, but later withdrew for that very same reason. My entire office, including me, uh, was really eager in uh, participating Within our office, we've been working a lot in um, memory politics, in public space, uh, with architecture, dealing with the question of like to what extent um, buildings are witnesses, uh, especially with National Socialist time. So, uh, yeah, we applied. But then um, after we received um, the much more deeply um, formulated um, brief, we understood that there wasn't really any way to navigate um, outside the idea of um turning this building into a police station. And since there wasn't any openness also for a, a larger debate or discussion, but we couldn't see a way to really um, engage kind of in a, in a deeper sense um, with the, the starting point, we withdrew. This lack of openness about the past is something that Austria has long been notorious for. A museum in Vienna called the House of Austrian History is dedicated to setting the record straight. Um, my name is Laura Langeda and I'm a historian and heritage researcher and I'm a junior collections curator at the House of Austrian History. Well, the house in Braunau, it's the birth house of Adolf Hitler. Um, Hitler himself, he only lived there for a couple of weeks, I think. After that, the family um, moved to another house. It was not the family's house, it was a boarding house and they had like rented a room there. And I think when he was a very young child, he moved to Germany altogether and then back to Austria, of course, but it's like no continuous part of his biography. However, during the Nazi regime, when um, the Nazi party also gained power in Austria, it was used by Nazi propaganda and they staged a nursery there and they made it a tourism hotspot. After the war, it was used for a couple of different things, mostly very uh, ordinary things, like it housed school classrooms for a while, it housed a library and I think a bank branch. And so a couple of years ago, in 2016, the house was seized by the Austrian government because the former owner, she was um, uncooperative um, when it came to finding a purpose for the house. But what makes the house especially complicated is that it's not actually a place of crime. It's not a place where something could be commemorated as nothing really happened there. The current plan to turn it into a police station 
has drawn widespread criticism, not least because the Austrian police itself has an image problem. Architect Gabu Heindl. The problem is not so much that it's the authentic birth house of Adolf Hitler. The problem is much more what it had become later on by the celebration of, um, of course, by the Nazis themselves, um, but even later and up until today, admiration and visits uh, of neo-Nazis um, uh, celebrating this this house. However, and that's really now the crucial part, to turn it into a police station in Austria, where the police is exactly that institution um, that um, has an issue itself with um, being close to right-wing connotations sometimes, and I'm not trying to actually now um, speak of the entire police, but uh, there's um, a, its own history that the police has to deal with, and it cannot be the remedy to neutralize, so to say, a place that um, that comes along with um, uh, current uh, neo-Nazi manifestations. So what can be the remedy? And how do you deal with a building whose only fault is that it briefly accommodated the newborn Adolf Hitler. A last word to Laura Langeda at the House of Austrian History. I think it doesn't matter whether it gets changed or it gets demolished or it stays the way it is. I think what is really important is to make it publicly accessible, to try to get rid of the taboo around the house um, and make it a subject of public discussion. I think those are the most important aspects of finding a way of dealing with the house. For Monocle in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolev. Well, that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. For more from the world of urbanism, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you get new episodes every week. And why not subscribe to Monocle magazine too? And you can do that at monocle.com. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Ribello and David Stevens, and David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, here's Gorillas with Meanwhile. Thank you for listening, city lovers. Champagne, but we like rich trap and we like rich. It don't feel the same.